right. So you, you know that this isn't necessarily going to be about me talking for the whole time. That occasionally I might ask a question or two, and those questions will not be rhetorical. They sometimes will require an answer. Um, so just to practice that a little bit, um, we are preaching through which book of the Bible at the moment? Okay. It's going to be like that. <laughs> and, um, and last week we were in which chapter? All right, in chapter 10, what happens? So up to this point in the book of Acts, the gospel has been exclusively for the Jews. And something unusual happens in the beginning of, the, of, of Acts 10, and there is a Roman centurion whose name is Cornelius. Cornelius has a vision, and in the vision he sees an angel. And the angel says something to him. The angel has recognized that this man who's been giving to the poor and praying is someone who in some way is seeking after God, and God responds to him. And God says to him, send men to Joppa to look for someone. Who does he send him to Joppa to look for? Peter. How does he know Peter's name? The Lord tells him. But God reveals to him the name of this man called Peter. So in faith, he sends men to Joppa, and these men journey to Joppa. And while they're journeying to Joppa, Peter is... Uh, dealing with a little late lunch situation, the Bible tells us, that his lunch is late or his dinner is late. And while he is waiting for his dinner to be prepared, he's up on the roof and he's praying and he falls into, the scripture says, some kind of trance, which we all know what that feels like, don't we, when dinner is a little late? <laughs> and, 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 and he doesn't go and snack. Um, he waits patiently for the dinner. And because he waits patiently for the dinner in this trance, he sees a vision of something. And in this vision, he sees something that he describes as being like a sheet let down from heaven three times. And in that sheet are animals of a kind that Peter recognizes as being the kind of things that he should not eat. And he hears a voice that says to him, take, eat. And Peter pushes back and says, no, by no means. I've never eaten these things, Lord. And the voice says again three times, take, eat, and eventually... This vision into the heavens is taken away from him, and the heavens close, and he can't see it anymore. And I find it interesting that this happens to him how many times? Three times. And how many men come to the door? Three men. And so in the vision, it's almost as if God is setting him up and telling him that something's about to happen in which this number three is going to be significant. Three times the sheet is let down, or this thing like a sheet. Three times the voice says, take eat. Three times Peter resists. God says, do not call unclean what I do not call on clean what I have called clean. And then the Spirit of God says something to him, that the door that you've just heard at, there are some men, go with them, fearing nothing. And so Peter goes with them, and he travels all the way back to Cornelius' house, and it seems as if when he begins to preach that the Spirit of God falls on those gathered. And Peter says in Acts 11 that we're about to read, he says, then I remembered something that the Lord Jesus had said to us. That to John, you will baptize with water, but there's going to come a time when you'll be baptized not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. God does something in Acts 10 that says to Peter that everything up to now that you've understood, everything that you've believed to be true, everything that you think is right, I'm telling you, by this thing I do, it's different now. And so as we're about to turn to read Acts 11, I want us to read through the whole of this chapter. So this is the next step 
Um, and so beginning um, in Acts 11, it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying and in a trance, and I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who had said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, look at these words. Who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they came to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year that they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed that by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. May we pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this opportunity to gather together. Lord, we give you thanks for your presence with us. We give you thanks, Lord, that you have inspired these scriptures that we read. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us, encourage us, train us in righteousness. Lord, correct us, rebuke us, do all that you would need to do, Lord. Perform your work in our midst, in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter's experience doesn't end with what he goes through in chapter 10. 
he faces immediately this contention that arises. Something happens, and they hear word of what's happened, and they begin to be upset about it. Now, do they have a reason to be upset with Peter for going to eat with Gentiles? Yes or no? Yes, because because of what the law says. The law had told them to be separate, yes? God calls Abraham. God says eventually that I'm, I'm going to create through you, through you there's going to be a nation born through you. And the Jews become that nation according to the flesh. You know what I mean by that? These people of the circumcision, the ones circumcised, are the ones who are God's people according to the flesh, even though the Scripture tells us in the New Testament that there, is, there are other sons and daughters of Abraham who are those who believe by faith. Because there was a moment in the Scriptures in Genesis when Abraham is looking at the stars, and as he's gazing at the stars, God says to him that as the stars are numbered, so shall your descendants be. And the Scripture says that Abraham believes God, and God accounts that belief, that faith to him as righteousness. So there are sons of Abraham according to the flesh, and there are sons of Abraham according to, and daughters of Abraham according to, faith. But throughout the whole of the Old Testament, God keeps his people, the Jews, separate from the nations around them. And why is this? To keep them holy, to keep them, to keep them from becoming like those other nations. What are the other nations doing? They're worshiping other gods. They're practicing sexual immorality. They are idolaters. All these things that God says that, that my people are not to be like this. What other things are they doing? He says they're practicing things like witchcraft. Stay away from that. My people are to have nothing to do with that. He says my people are instead to be separate and different from those all around them. And he continues through the whole Old Testament in this way. And so when they come into the land, the promised land that he's going to give them through Joshua, he destroys the nations before them. And so you have it that the hand of God is with them and the hand of God is against those who are not with them. But if anybody ever turned to the Hebrews and said, I want to be part of your community, what were they to do? To receive them or to reject them? To receive them. So anybody coming to the Israelites, wishing to be like them, had to be circumcised, had to accept the law given to God by God through Moses, had to be like they were, and had to, like them, become separate from everything around them. And so, rightly so, they have a problem with what Peter has done, which has gone into those who are not like the Jews. And what I want you to grasp here is that God, throughout the whole of the Scripture, mandated a separation. And I'm going to use a word, and this word is culturalist. We may even use the word racist in a way. We may say that God said, you must not mix with anybody that's not you. Who did this? God. Throughout the whole of the Old Testament, the Jews are separate. And so at this point at which Peter says, or they get word of what's happened, that, that, that Peter's gone into eat with people that they were to have nothing to do with, of course, they're mad and they're upset, and there's contention that arises. Now, what's interesting is how Peter approaches this. What does he not do? He doesn't open the scriptures and it says, let me take you through the Bible. And let me show you that God was going to do this here, and he said I was going to do this here, and he did this there, and he said that there, and he said that there, and prophesied. What does Peter do? Instead, he tells them a story of what God has just done in him and through him. And he relates it, the scripture says, to them right from the beginning in order. 
And look how he builds this up. He says, he tells them about this vision that he has. He tells them that this sheet is let down. He tells them that in this sheet there are things that he shouldn't eat. He tells them that interestingly, when you think about eating, where does the thing that contaminates us that we eat come from, inside or outside? If I eat something that's contaminated, it comes from the outside and it comes into me, yeah? But we remember that Jesus said it's not that what goes into a man or woman's mouth that contaminates him, it's what? What comes from inside. So it's very interesting that the Jews' approach to, to thinking of uncleanliness is not about what comes from inside out and that their hearts are sick and their hearts are in need of circumcision, as the Scripture tells us, but they're more concerned about what's around them. They're more concerned about looking at their surroundings and the people that they shouldn't mix with instead of saying, what is in here? And Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs because there's death and there's all sorts of things inside you and you're more concerned about your externals than your internals. But the Holy Spirit, when he comes, works from where? Inside out. A new heart, a new flesh. This is God's way. And so Peter, I just found it interesting when I was looking at it, that God is saying, take and eat. And Peter's resistance is not about what's in here. He's just like, no, that can't touch or mix with dirty things. We've got to be separate. No, no conception of the muck and the sin of his own heart in this moment of who he is before God. Three times this happens. Look how Peter builds the case. It says in, in verse 12, he says, by the way, I didn't go alone. He said six other brothers came with me. He's saying that it wasn't just me. There were some others, so I'm not really making this up. If you don't believe me, ask them, and they'll tell you that what happened, happened. And he comes to this place in verse 17, where effectively, after he has described to them how the Holy Spirit fell on them as he fell in Acts 2 upon the gathered church, that he says, who was I that I could withstand God? Who am I that I could withstand God? And the response, if you have your Bibles there, if you look in verse 18, it says, what? What was their response to this? Was there any more contention? Did they have clever questions to ask him? The dispute was ended, and instead it says, When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. This is where they come to as a result of hearing Peter relating what God has done. And there, I'm going to tell you, there are times in our lives when we can't, by reasoning through scriptures, prove anything to anybody. Yeah? And what could have happened at this point if they had decided that they were going to argue and reason this out? What might have happened is that Peter might have said, well, I think that according to the scriptures, this is what Christianity is. And I'm going to set up my own standard and sets of beliefs, and I'm going to pu publish it on the old first century website. And I'm going to say, this is what I believe. And you on the other side, we don't believe the same thing. And what do we have there? The first creation of the first what? Denomination. Yeah, because we believe this, they believe that. So I'm going to go and preach to Jews, and you can go and preach to the Gentiles, and we're going to fall apart because of our contentions. I read somewhere that there are something like 44,000 denominations in this world. There was a seminary that had studied this, and they said that there's a new denomination created every 10 and a half hours. Yeah, so literally every day, it's about two and a half new denominations created. And I believe every one of them begins in a similar place to this, that you see something, you hear something, you believe that God has told you to do it, 
and you look at your brothers and sisters at the time and you say, I don't really believe what you believe and, and therefore we've got to go our separate ways and then you become separate and then it happens again and then it happens again and it happens again and it happens again and it happens again. And you get to where we are today where we have evangelicals and we have Methodists, call out a denomination that you know of. We have Quakers, we have Mennonites, we have Baptists, we have Anabaptists, Pentecostals, anything else? Lutheran, Catholics, anything else? Orthodox, Reformed, Presbyterian. And these are just the big denominations because within each of those you have, how many different branches of the church of God are there? Yeah? There's a church of God in this place and the church of God in that place. And, and then there's the church of Christ and probably the church of Christ in God and the church of God in Christ and so on and so forth. Yeah? Um, and it begins because people at some point decide that what I believe and the truth I believe is more important than what? Unity. More important than unity and that by my rightness, by my showing the world that I have an orthodoxy about what I believe and what I say is right, that they're going to believe that that person is a true Christian because of what their belief statement says, because of how right they are about the way they break the Scriptures down. But the Scripture doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. Is love divisive? Div Can you divide love? I'm trying to try a word that wasn't going to work there. <laughs> you can't divide love. Can you divide Christ? And so... I want to point out a couple other things from this chapter before moving on. Antioch becomes significant in the early church. Um, you move down and you realize that, that when Paul and Barnabas are sent out, at the time that they're sent out to begin the first missionary journey, it says that they're gathered and they're praying, and whilst they're praying and ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. Yeah. So Antioch, look how significant it becomes. Um, but putting Acts 11 in context, something significant happens in, verse, in chapter 12. Anybody know what happens next in chapter 12? James is the clue. James is killed. Who is James? Not Jesus' brother. John's brother is John. Yeah? One of the 12, one of the apostles. Yeah, And also, when Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, who was with him? Peter, John, and James. One of Jesus' closest disciples is killed because Herod decides that this is something that's going to please people and kills James. And it says, almost kills Peter, but for the church praying. Yeah, And so, sandwiched between Peter sharing and them hearing, and the beginning of this persecution that ends up with James being killed and Peter almost being killed are some verses that that's what I want us to look at. And I want you to remember also that it isn't easy from this point because Peter himself, as Ben reminded us last week, later is found to have acted in a way that, that is a little inconsistent with who he is here. When he's with Jews, he's acting like a Jew, and when he's with Gentiles, he's acting like a Gentile. And in, 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 in the book of Galatians, Paul says, I had to challenge him about this. You even come to Acts 15, where you'll see that, that, that some people are saying that, that forget all this nonsense, the, the Gentile believers must still be circumcised. And they gather a council together, and they resolve that that stuff is over. No more of that. But there are some things that we think are important for the church to, to, to take in, in, into consideration and to live by. And one of the things they tell them there is, have nothing to do with idolatry and abstain from sexual immorality. 
Yeah? Remembering that those are the same things that God once upon a time said that my people are to have nothing to do with and were the reason, was the reason why God's people were separate from the rest of the world. But the verse I want us to focus on, if Rebecca can get it up, is verse 26. The disciples scatter. Some still preach just to Jews, but some begin to preach to what some texts call Hellenists. And other texts, I think the New International Version says Greeks. And eventually after Paul comes down and Barnabas comes down, we come to verse 26 and it says, when he finds him, Paul Barnabas talking about Paul. He brings him to Antioch, and for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so what I want to spend a little bit of time here doing is talking about why that might have been. Why were they called Christians for the first time? And could you leave that up for a little bit, please? Were they calling themselves Christians? No, it says they were first called Christians. Who was calling them this? Others. We don't know whether it was, whether it was the, just the culture was looking at them and saying, these people are Christians. And we'll look a little bit about what the word Christian might mean back then, but they're being called it. Do you think this was a term of encouragement? Probably not. Those. Might have been like that, said under the breath. A term of derision, maybe. Probably. Almost certainly something about this term that meant that they were called it for the first time in Antioch. What had they previously been called? Remember in Acts 2, it had said that they were men who were full of wine. So the first description of Christians in the book of Acts seemed to be like a bunch of drunks. Yeah? <laughs> um, later in Acts 4, it says that they were uneducated, untrained men who had been with Jesus. Acts 6, Stephen is called blasphemous, so it's another term spoken of Christians. In Acts 9, Saul before he becomes Paul, is persecuting people who are called followers of the way. Yeah? It's another term described, used to describe them. That followers of the way appears later in Acts 19, Acts 24. And later they're also called this sect of the Nazarene. Because Jesus came from, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Was the joke. I guess it was some kind of New Testament joke. No. <laughs> but here instead of that, they're called Christians. So the first thing I want to say is that Christians should be something we are called more than something that we call ourselves, according to this text. There should be something about us that causes other people to call us Christians, maybe even in derision. How does that make you feel? Rather than this badge of honor that we wear, when we tick the box, the census box, and we say, Christian. Instead, the beginning of the term that we wear as our badge of honor is something that begins in the book of Acts, Acts 11, verse 26, as maybe a term of derision. And so let's look and see what we can tell from this text about why maybe they were being called that. Verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord, the power of God, the presence of God, the character of God. God's strength was on their side against their enemies. Sometimes it seems as if the reference to the hand of the Lord in the Old Testament may even refer to the very Spirit of God. 
Because there's a passage in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel is carried away into the valley of dry bones, he says, the hand of the Lord lifts me up and carries me into a place. If that had been in the New Testament, he might have said, the Spirit of God lifted me up and moved me and put me in a place. Because in verse 26, that grace, the grace of God was manifest. In verse 27, it tells us that there is prophecy going on here. Agabus is a prophet that comes down and prophesies. So the gifts and the power and working of God and the presence of the Spirit is at work in their midst. Verse 29 to 30, it says that when they perceive that there's going to be famine around them, what do they do? Store up for themselves? Hoard? They decide, each in their heart, to give as is according to their means. Compassion for other brothers and sisters. They realize that through this word of prophecy, it reminds me a little bit of when in the Old Testament, God, through Joseph and his dreams, warns that there's something coming. And as a result of this dream, they're able to prepare and to store up and to survive this famine that's coming. In the same way, God, in this, in this, in this verse, withhold, tells through this prophet Agabus that there's going to be a great famine throughout all the world, and the disciples, each according to his ability, determines to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, and they do this. Called Christians, the hand of God is with them, the grace of God is manifest amongst them. The power and presence and the gifts of God are at work within them. Compassion. But this is the one I want to focus on. What is their culture? Are they Jewish? Not anymore. Yeah. The Jews don't like them anymore. The Jews haven't liked them for a little while, have they? So they don't have Jewish culture. And, and, the, and the texts that translate the word, the word Hellenists as Hellenist is almost making a sense in which these might have been Greek-speaking Jews, but it isn't that. These are Greeks that some begin to speak to. So at some point in, the, in Acts 11, what happens is Jews and Greeks together in the same place. An abomination, according to the Jewish Old Testament. But somehow... No more Jewish culture, so there's no more circumcision doesn't matter anymore, following Jewish customs and practices. Even the law doesn't matter anymore. On this side, what would Greek culture have been? There would have been Greek philosophy. There would have been Greek art. There would have been Greek behavior. There would have been Greek gods to worship. Yes? And somehow these people come together from Jewish culture and Greek culture and become something new, and the community looks at them and says, we don't know what to call them anymore. Yeah? If they'd retained some of the Greek culture, you could have said, they're probably sort of Greek still, maybe. If they'd acted like Jews, they could have maybe given them that same label. They're still sort of Jews. They're acting like Jews. They're doing Jewish things. But the Holy Spirit does something that confounds the world. He brings together people from one culture and people from another culture, cultures that clash, and does this. And does this. And the world looks at it and says, ah, new word. New term. New culture. Whose culture? The culture of Christ. Whose are they? Christ. Whose disciples are they? Christ. Whose culture are they following? Christ. According to the spirit, that is. Now, let me not say to you that if, if they continue to live in the flesh... Because the scripture says that those led by the Spirit, as many as led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. If they continue to live in their flesh, then maybe there would have been a division of the church. 
If they'd continue to look at the things that made them different from one another, maybe they wouldn't have dwelled together. But instead, by the power of God upon them, by the Spirit of God in them, God joins them together in a way that the world gives them a new name, and they begin here, and how many years later, here we are. Their racial identity mattered how much at this point? Didn't. Following culture mattered how much at this point? Greek culture. And, and if you bring this forward to today, do people look at you and look at me and do they see a British man? You all do. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? You see the color of my skin? There's some other English people here. I won't point you out. <laughs> I'm going to confess, when we first came here, whenever it was, a little while ago, it was hard when we walked in here because what did I see? Did I see Christians? Did I see people that didn't look like me? The first thing I saw, and that was hard. To come in and sit down and think, God, are you sure? <laughs> yeah? And then Tyler struck up some R&B. <laughs> and I, my longings of my flesh begin to tell me that I want this, and I want that, and I want it to be like this, and I want the preaching to sound like this, and I want this to be like this according to my flesh. But in the spirit, by the end of that first service, what did God told me? This is your home. And these are your brothers and sisters by my spirit. If we live in the flesh, we see just flesh. We have preferences for sport. Yeah, I confess, I, I, I don't, I like soccer. I like to call football. <laughs> yeah. And in England, we added this tag, American football, so that we knew that we were talking about Balls that you threw, which is why I don't know why you call it football, <laughs> rather than kick with your foot. And I know that if I dwell in that, that makes a problem and it makes it hard for me to dwell among some of you. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. And then there are some here who support some English people who like different teams. And I know that that tribalism, and you know what it's like with different sporting teams and how that tribalism can cause you to be separate from one another and to hate one another, and, and, and to decide that that person, I can't eat with them and stuff. But who is it that God says we should not eat with? Can you put up, Rebecca? We're going to jump. 1 Corinthians 5.11. It's a long way down. And I want you to remember, as, with, as Rebecca is finding this, that this, sorry, we, I gave her scriptures in order, and this was way down at the bottom. Here we go. Remember how God told the Jews to be separate from other nations, yeah? And he told them, don't have anything to do with the external nations who act in a particular way. What does this say? I've now written to you, Paul says to the Corinthians, not to keep company with anyone named a... Who's he talking about, Christians or non-Christians? Don't eat with Christians who are sexually immoral or covetous, which means another word for covetous is greedy, Yeah? Or an idolater or a reviler. What's a reviler? A reviler is someone who is just perpetually angry and critical. And just finds fault with things all the time and is, is just, 
chatter the whole time about whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is, but about whatever it is. The scripture says, a drunkard, an extortioner, don't even eat with such people. God's not speaking about the world here because elsewhere in the scriptures it says, if it, Paul says, if I'm speaking about the world, you're going to have to come out from the world, even though the scripture does say, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's not as if suddenly this barrier that is outside that God has to keep us separate from the world, or keep the Jewish nation separate from the world, suddenly evaporates, and then all of a sudden this stuff is meant to be in, the, in our midst. We're called to what? Holiness. We're called to be different. We're called to be people who the world looks at and doesn't say they behave and look and think and act exactly like us, but there's something about them, and it's not the culture of, of America. It's not the culture of England or France or Germany or any other country. It's the culture of whoever it is that they belong to and who do they belong to. Clearly, it's Christ, because I don't know much about this Jesus, but I know something, that he was holy. And I know that he loved. And I know that he had compassion. And I know that he cared for people. And I know that he wasn't divisive. And I know that he wasn't perpetually angry. And I know that he wasn't this or that or other. And they look at us and they say, they aren't those things, so therefore they must belong to someone else. And the one they belong to is who? Christ. But if this is who we are, then they question this. Yeah. If they look at us and they see in one congregation entirely people of one culture, of one color, of one political denomination, of one preference or another, of one worship style, of one duration of preaching or how loud the preacher shouts or how responsive the congregation is or isn't, they conclude what? That they're just like we are. That their preferences, according to the flesh, matter more to them than unity. Yes? Jesus told a parable about community um, in Matthew 18, verses 26 to 27. This is the parable that's sometimes called a parable of the unforgiving debtor. There's a man who has a debt that he cannot pay. And probably back then, that doesn't just mean you're going to have to declare yourself bankrupt or get a bad credit rating. It probably meant that your whole family was going to go to whatever the equivalent of debtors' prisons were. And so this debt's going to bring this man into a terrible place. And he goes to a king, and he says to the king, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. What does this man think he can do? This man thinks that he can still pay the debt. Have patience with me. Give me time. Give me a little bit more time, and I can get this right. Give me a little bit more time, and I can be more perfect. Give me a little bit more time, and I can be more righteous. Give me a little bit more time and I can work this thing out. And the master doesn't say to him, you're right. You're right. You can. If I give you more time, you can pay the debt. If I give you more time, you can be everything and do everything that you think you can do. Instead, the master of the servant is moved with compassion and releases him and forgives how much of the debt? All of the debt. 
Now, if what happened here was the man goes and says, please forgive me, I can pay the debt, and the master says, okay, I'll give you time. Then the man has a right to go out from the presence of the master and to do what he does next. And what he does next is what? He goes to the man that owes him 10 bucks and says, give me that 10 bucks. Give me the, and you, you owe me like three for something the other day, and you owe me two, and you owe me like $1,400 for something or other. <laughs> yeah. and, and he begins to accumulate from his brothers and sisters little bits and pieces. Why is he doing this? Because he's still trying to pay the debt. If he leaves the presence of the king and he hears what the king says to him, I forgive you the entire debt. Not a bit of it, all of it. If he hears this, why does he then go and ask his brothers and sisters for anything? We don't. Yeah? But if he hears what he seems to hear, which is that I, I've got time to pay. I can still work this out. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and take this out of my brother and sister. You, you owe me money, you owe me money, you owe me money, you owe me money, you owe me money. And the thought, which is a false thought, that somehow by doing all these things, he can still pay the master. This, I believe, is half, there's the whole of the problem that we have in Christianity. So we have to pray that God opens our eyes to understand his magnificence, to understand the fullness of the forgiveness that he has given us. His forgiveness is not partial. It's not about a couple of things. He doesn't look at us and say that I forgive you this, that, and the other, but those things I didn't need to forgive you for because they were okay in the first place. God pronounces the flesh dead. And there's only one solution for the flesh, and it means the flesh needs to die. And the flesh dies and is buried with Christ. Place no confidence in the flesh. There's nothing good about us. The only good about us is Christ. And so if I leave the presence of the king and think there's still something good about me, I've missed it. I want to suggest to you that this is the reason that we have time to look at anybody else in church or to think that any other denomination is more wrong than we are right or to think that someone else deserves less of God than we do or to look down on races or to look down on other cultures or to look down on people that like different whatever it is to us is because we haven't got a full understanding conception of who God is and what he's done for us. And if we can get this, then maybe we're people who are compassionate and loving. Can we go to 1 Corinthians 13? Let's just read about love for a little. Because this verse comes in the context of people who are full of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, something's better than gifts. Love suffers long. This is our cultural identity. This is our creed. This is who we are. And if we're this, then there's no political affiliation that's going to deal with this. We'll transcend that. We won't see color. We won't see race. We'll see just what? In Christ, brothers and sisters. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, doesn't behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, fears how much, believes how much, 
hopes in jewels. This is our God. This is our Christ. This is the power and presence of God and his Holy Spirit in us to give us love that never fails. Prophecies fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish, but love endures, and it's said to be of hope, faith, and love. The greatest of these three things is love. So my thought is this, that as they looked at this church in Antioch, they saw something. They saw some of this going at work. They saw people from different cultures dwelling together as brothers and sisters without care or concern for their own possessions, without care or concern for whether they preferred this or that or this or that or this or that or this or that. They just looked at one another and said, you're my sister, you're my brother, you're my brother, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my sister, you're my brother. If you love the Lord, you're my brother and sister. Jesus said this himself. There's a time when people come and say to him, your mother and brother and sisters are outside. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, excuse me a second, I've just got to go out. He doesn't. He said, no, 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 no. My mother and brother and sister and father and all those other people are who? Those who do the will of our heavenly father. Not according to the flesh. And so we have that choice. We can live in the flesh or we can be those led by the spirit of God who the scripture says are sons and daughters of God. Seeing with eyes that see beyond differences. Not saying that differences don't matter. Not saying that our uniqueness isn't God's perfect design, that every one of us was designed and made, formed in a way for a particular purpose, for God's purpose, and that we should just sweep that all away and say it doesn't matter. But instead it's saying we are better than that. We are citizens of which kingdom? And so through a heavenly perspective, through the power of God, through the power of his spirit, this is my prayer. Not just to hear. Everywhere. Yeah? Everywhere. Everywhere you go. I've come from 4,000 whatever it is miles away, and I found family. We should be to go anywhere on the world and look at someone and say, you love Jesus? Yeah? You're my family. You love the Lord? You're my family. You love the Lord? And I have real family in this room. And as much as you're my nephew, these are my brothers and sisters. Yeah. And if you love the Lord, then you're also a brother. We said this to Mia this morning. Zach and I were holding arms, and Zach had his arm around him. He said, Mia, this is my brother. And she's like, huh? <laughs> yeah. And I think the world responds the same way. When we demonstrate through the love of Christ, the power of God at work in us, our ownership by the one whose name we take, however they may call us it, even in derision, the name of Christian.